When our Lord Jesus Christ was here in this world, he lived about 33 and a half years. He went to Calvary where he made an offering and a sacrifice unto the Father on behalf of those whom the Father had given unto him. Uh, he emerged victorious over death and the grave. And then he spent 40 days on the earth before he went back to heaven. Now, at the end of the book of Mark, he tells us that he uh, was received into heaven. Luke tells us at the end of Luke 24, the end of the, his writings, that he was carried into heaven. And then in Acts chapter 1, we're told that he was taken up into heaven. But in all three cases, you will find where the Lord received no assistance when he left this world and went to glory. The Bible tells us that Enoch uh, was someone that God took to heaven. You know, Enoch walked with God for 365 years. And it says, and God took him. Enoch went to heaven, but not only his own power. God took him. And then we find where Elijah Read about his ascension into heaven in 1 Kings chapter 2. And the Lord sent a chariot and horses of fire to get Elijah, and in a whirlwind took him from this earth and took him to heaven. But the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And in that first chapter of Acts, uh, that scene that we view here to me is so wonderful and beautiful as the Lord gave final instructions to his disciples. And then they saw some angels that appeared there, those that were dressed in white. And the angel said unto his disciples, Why stand ye gazing into heaven? Uh, this same Jesus, whom ye see at this time, that shall be received into heaven, shall in like manner come again and receive you unto himself. And that's the last thing said about the Lord before he went back to glory. We're told that He's coming back to get his people. In John chapter 14, we find where the Lord said, Then not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I'd have told you so. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, when Jesus ascended and went back to heaven, we're told eight different times in the New Testament his position. And his position was on the right hand of his Father. Now, that's highly significant. The Bible says something one time that's important. It says it twice or more, it's extremely important. And we're told eight different times in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus Christ went into heaven and he was on the right hand of the majesty on high, where he sat down on the right hand of God. Now, the right hand in the Bible is an expression that uh, denotes power, authority, uh, dignity, etc. Um, it's em emblematic of these things. Uh, you take a look over in the book of Exodus chapter 15, we find a song that was written after Israel was delivered out of the land of Egypt. And you'll find where Moses said in verse 6, Thy right hand, O God, is glorious in power. Thy right hand hath dashed the enemy into pieces. He's just telling you right here that God's right hand was symbolic of the omnipotent power of God. In 1 Kings chapter 2, you'll find where the mother of Solomon, Bathsheba, came to make a request unto him. And when she arrived, we find where King Solomon arose and he bowed and then he sat down upon his throne and then he set his mother on his right hand. It was a position of honor. The day's coming when the Lord will come again. And we read about this in various places, but we go to Matthew chapter 25. We find in verse 31, for the king shall come in his glory. And he should be like a shepherd which divideth his sheep from the goats. And he'll place his sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. And he'll say to those in his right hand, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice they're first identified as sheep. Then they're described as blessed. 
And then a little later, they're going to be referred to as righteous. And where are they at? The sheep, the blessed, the righteous, they're going to be on the right hand of God in glory. The right hand of God is expressive of God's power and his authority, his majesty. It's a place of honor. I read in Psalm 16, which is a messianic psalm, uh, it's referred to as the golden psalm of David because it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you first read it, you may think David's talking about himself, and David was relating experiences he had with the Lord in this way, but he is referring to the super David. And I know this because in the book of Acts chapter 2, you will find where the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost makes specific reference to this particular chapter, and it's very clear he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're told in verse 24 that the Lord Jesus Christ in his death was raised from death because it was not possible that he could be holding of it. See, God had loosed the pains of death for it was not possible. Notice, it was not possible that he should be holding of death. Now, I don't know anybody that I've ever seen that was dead and was buried that has come back alive. Death has a hold on them, you know. But only for so long. Because the Lord Jesus Christ conquered death, there will come a time when those bodies will break free and overcome the death that they've experienced. But for the time being. But it was not possible for death to hold the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he tells them, and he goes to that 16th chapter or 16th Psalm. He says, let me now talk to you freely of the patriarch David who is both dead and buried in his sepulchre is with us today. He makes it very clear that David died a long time before that. And David was buried a long time before that. And they had his sepulchre in their presence at that very, very time. And yet in that 16th Psalm, you're going to find where David says, My flesh shall rest in hope, because... Uh, thou shall not, thy soul sh uh, shall not see death, Lord. My soul shall not, uh, shall, shall rise. And it says, my flesh shall not see corruption. Now, the body of David had seen corruption, but the body he's talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not. And so when you read the 16th Psalm, he's, it's a messianic Psalm of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 8, we find where he says, I have set the Lord always before my face because the Lord is on my right hand and I shall not be moved. Now notice the right hand here. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is really the one that's under consideration here. He says, I've set the face of the Lord before me, talking about his Father. When Christ was in this world, he knew exactly why he was in this world. He knew exactly what he came to do. He knew the Father's will. He knew the Father's commandment. John 6, 38 and 39, the Lord said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. Jesus knew the will of the Father. The Father's face was always before the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the commandment of the Father. You go to John 6, 10, 17 and 18, you'll find where the Lord said, that my father doth love me because I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, no man taketh it from me. I lay down my life. I have power to take it. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Jesus knew the commandment of the father. He knew his will. He knew his commandment. He knew his counsel. He knew his good pleasure. He knew the everlasting terms of the everlasting covenant. It was always before the Lord Jesus Christ the entirety of his 33 and a half years here in this world. He says, because the Lord is on my right hand, I shall not be moved. The Father was always with the Son. And he was not moved from his mission. That's why you read things like Isaiah 42, 4. He shall not fail, neither shall he become discouraged. Because why? The Father's face was always before him, and the Father was on his right hand, right hand, and he shall not be moved. In the book of Isaiah, it says, my, I have set my face like a flint. And that just shows that the Lord Jesus Christ knew where, why he came. He knew when he would go to Calvary, what would be accomplished at Calvary. Nothing was going to sidetrack him. Nothing was going to deter him. Why? Because the face of the Father was always before him. 
and the Lord was always on his right side, I shall not be moved. Now, that's true also in David. David, in general, always had the face of the Father before him. He knew something about the Father's love, about the Father's will. He knew something about the plan of God for him to be the king over all of Israel. He always had the Father's face before him. He says, I always had that face before me because he's on my right hand, I shall not be moved. When he says he's on my right hand, that simply means that his power is there, his grace is there, his mercy is there, his strength is there, his guiding hand is there, his protective hand is there, and because of that, I shall not be moved away from the goal or my mission here in the world. Now this can apply to all of us. It's important, it's very important for, for us to have the face of our Lord before us on a daily basis. When you get up in the morning, it's important that you have the face of God before you. Now, what, what does that mean? What does that expression mean? It means uh, that you have said a prayer of thanksgiving. It means that you now uh, desire to know more about the Lord, more about the Word of God that describes to you the Lord. And the more you know that, the more you're going to know the will of God, the purpose of God, the counsel of God, and the good pleasure of God, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. Because he's at your right hand. When you see him at your right hand, you see strength, you see power, you see deliverance. You see one right there that will give you the strength to do all that he has commanded you to do. That's when you see Philippians 4.13. We can do all things through Christ which strengthened us. Why? Well, he's on your right hand. And you shall not be moved. You shall not be moved away from the comfort that he gives you. You shall not be moved away from the, the joy that he gives you. He said, well, Brother Lawrence, what about all the trials and the tribulations and the, and the sorrows and the heartaches? Yeah, they're all coming. <laughs> no one's exempt from that. But you see, if the face of the Lord is before you and he's on your right hand, he says, ye shall not be moved. You won't be moved away from that joy. You won't be moved away from that comfort. You'll not be moved away from that peace. You'll not be moved away from the consolation that you have in Jesus Christ. But it's important that you have the Lord always before you, knowing that he's on your right hand, you see. In the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. There's a mark out there. We're pressing toward it. In order to get to that mark, we need to have the face of the Lord before us, knowing he's on our right hand and we shall not be moved. Your experience tells you that. Your experience tells you when you have failed to do that what the results are. But your experience tells you when you have got the face of God before you, when you have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have an understanding of his will, of his commandments, of his instructions, knowing he's on your right hand, symbolic of his strength and power and might, that you should not be moved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Since 16 Psalm is a messianic psalm. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the psalmist David was a human writer of it. That's why it's called the Golden Psalm. It's, a, it's poetry uh, uh, that David wrote there, so to speak, in this psalm. You know, every time we sing a hymn, we're singing poetry that's been put to music. That's what it is. And this psalm here is a God-honoring psalm. It speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I shall not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That could not be applied to David. It has to be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. That word hell, by the way, can mean um, death. I mean, excuse me, it can mean the grave as well as a place uh, of torment. The Lord Jesus Christ did not go to a place of torment like some people have come to believe or have been taught. When he died on Calvary, he was placed into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights his soul did not go into hell. It went in, his body went into his grave. His soul went straight to glory. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? One of the seven sayings of Christ was this. He says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It sounds like to me the spirit of Christ went into the hands of God. Where was God at? God was in glory. God was in heaven. His spirit, my friends, went straight into glory. And what did he tell the thief? When the thief said, remember me, uh, Lord, remember me this day when thou comest to thy kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Hell and paradise are not the same, I can assure you. Paradise is another word for glory. It's another word for heaven. Jesus went right into heaven. His soul and spirit was, went right straight into the hands of the Father. And the spirit and soul of that thief went right into glory along with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The body of Christ experienced no corruption. He was sinless. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was sinless. Now we know when we place the bodies of our loved ones in the grave, over time they're going to corrupt, aren't they? They're going to go back to the dust from which it came. Slowly but surely, that's going to be the case. But the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, and he came forth, and he did not suffer corruption. Now, the Lord is always before my face. Go back to Psalms 2, and David speaks expressly about this. He says, I have the Lord always before my face. I believe he was before the face of David when he fought against the lion and the bear. I believe he was before the face of David when he fought Goliath the giant. I believe he was before the face of David when he fought those battles with the Philistines. David was not invincible. Every time David went to battle, he was subject to being killed, except the protective hand of God was around him. David says, the face of the Lord was always before me when he was being pursued by Saul. As we covered in our last session concerning the life of David, David had two opportunities to take the life of Saul, but you know why he did not? Because the face of God was before him. And he would not touch the Lord's anointed. The face of God was before him, and he knew because the Lord is on my right hand, I shall not be moved. I will not be moved to touch the Lord's anointed. His men warned him to. His men urged him to. His men encouraged him to take the life of Saul, saying, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. That sounded pretty good. When, when you've been hounded, when you've been chased, when you've been, uh, you know, um, sought after, like David was sought after by Saul for all those many weeks and months and years, and now you've got an opportunity to take the life of your enemy, that sounds pretty good. You know, you, I think you're right, you might think. Well, you know, it, it makes sense to me. How in the world could he be right here at this time if God hadn't delivered him in my hand? Well, God did deliver him in his hands, but not to slay him. He delivered him into David's hands to test David. And David passed the test. You know why? Because the face of the Lord was before him. The face of the Lord was before him. Have you ever been tempted to do something wrong and the face of your daddy came in your mind? <laughs> You know, you, you can just see him right there telling you not to do things like that. I've had a few experiences that way. And you know what? I backed off and I didn't do it. How much more the face of God before you, because he's on your right hand, ye shall not be moved. But I want to talk to you a little bit about those seven, eight times that we find in the scriptures where it says when Jesus ascended back into heaven that he wound up on the right hand of the Father. Right hand of God. Each time you read that, you're going to read something important connected with it. Let's go to Colossians 3.1 to begin with. In Colossians 3.1, the apostle says, If ye therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. If ye be risen with Christ, what does that mean? That means when Christ was resurrected from the grave, he was your representative. And as Christ rose from the grave, that is the surety that you will rise from the grave one day. If you therefore be risen with Christ. Also, when you're born of the Spirit, you experience a resurrection inwardly when you're raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. If ye therefore be risen with Christ, the word if there means really since you have been, since you've been risen with Christ, then what should you do? You should seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father on high, on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things beneath. Now the more we set our affection on heavenly things, the less we'll set them on earthly things. But the more we set them on earthly things, the less we're going to set them on heavenly things. That's the way it works, does it not? 
So we need to set our affection on things above and not things on the earth. Affection means feeling. Now, the start where it says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Well, what's above up there? Well, the Lord's above, isn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ is above. He went back into heaven. He's above, so I need to be seeking his fellowship. I need to be seeking a closer walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one thing I can seek from above. Isn't it nice to walk hand in hand with Jesus from time to time? Isn't it nice to be on a trip, feel like the Lord is your companion as you're driving down the road in this chaotic world in which we live? Seek those things which above. I know wisdom, there's a wisdom from above. The third chapter of James tells me that. James 3, 15 and 16, he describes the wisdom of this earth in contrast to the wisdom which is above. He says the wisdom of this world, which is earthly and below, is earthly and sensual and devilish. There is a wisdom of the world that's earthly. It is sensual. Notice sensual, and it's devilish. But he says that wisdom which is above is first pure and peaceable and gentle and produces the fruits of righteousness. Well, if I'm going to have this wisdom, I've got to seek it. If I'm going to have this wisdom, I've got to set my affection on things above and not things here on this earth. It's so easy since we're earthly, living on an earth with earthly things, to set our affection on earthly things, is it not? It's easy to do that. And the more we do that, the less we're going to set it on heavenly things once again. But I can assure you, you're going to be far ahead and far better off if you set your affection on things which are above and not things here on this earth. The Lord is above. Wisdom comes from above. I'm looking forward to one day going above myself, and I'd like to know more about that country. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham, by faith, looked for a country whose builder and maker was God. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. You know, if you get ready to go somewhere you've never been before, it'd benefit you to do a little research on it, to learn all about it as much as you possibly can. I was over in the Bible lands 1999, and before we go from one place to the other, I'd try to search out ahead of time all I could about it. It's history and a lot of things about it. It just made, when I got there, uh, it was a lot more uh, enjoyable because I already had some knowledge about it, even though I hadn't been there. Now, I hadn't been to heaven, but I tell you what, I sure enjoy reading about it. I sure enjoy hearing it uh, saying about it. I sure enjoy hearing it preached about. And so I'd like to know a little bit about heaven. The more I know about heaven, the more... Uh, I'll be, you know, we need, to be, we need to work on being so heavenly minded with just no earthly good. Now, that, when somebody says that about you, they're giving you a compliment. And I, I've had people uh, say that about other people, about me. Okay, he's just so heavenly minded, he's just no earthly good. Thank God for that. I'm, I'm guilty. I'd like to be guilty as charged. I, I wish somebody charged me with that every day. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. If ye therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set not your affection on things of this earth, because you are dead, and your life is hid with God in Christ. And Christ, who is your life, when he shall appear, you shall also appear with him in glory. That's going to take place one day. You're going to appear with him in glory when he appears. Why? Because... Christ is your life, and you're dead with him. That just simply means when Christ died, you died. You died with him, in him, when he died on the cross. Why? Because he was your representative, you see. Then when he arose from the grave, you arose right along with him. Therefore, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things where? From above, and not those things beneath or below. Set your affection on things above, and not on earthly things here. So, where is Christ? He's on the right hand of God. He's sitting on the right hand of God. Now, let's come over here to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and verse 3. And the writer tells us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the express image of the Father. Him being the express image uh, of God and the brightness of his glory. And that's uh, the allusion here is to the sun and the rays of the sun. You cannot separate the rays of the sun from the sun. You know that? You can't do it. 
The sun produces the rays. You can't separate it. And the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth was God manifest in the flesh. He is the brightness of the glory of the Father and the express image which is telling me that Christ the Son and, Christ, and God the Father are one and the same in every aspect. There's not one, one way that they're not the same. They're identical in every way. That's why when Jesus said in John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, he was just simply saying my will, the will of the Father, they're one and the same. Christ came as the brightness of his glory, a brightness that's brighter than the noonday sun, and the express image of the Father, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When God created the heaven and the earth, he spoke it, my friends, by the power of his word, but now he upholds all things by the word of his power. Isn't it amazing to you that God has never had to replace the sun? The sun didn't burn out hundreds of years ago until I got to put a new sun up there. Isn't it amazing to you that the moon that you see at nighttime is the same moon that God created 6,000 years ago? Aren't you glad when you see the glittering stars up there, they're the exact same stars that's been here for 6,000 years? 6,000. You look at the same sun, same moon, same stars that Adam and Eve looked at. That's, that's kind of intriguing to me. God hadn't had to replace the sun or the moon and the stars. We had to replace batteries in remote controls, batteries in our fobs, batteries in our clocks, batteries in our flashlights. Why? Because it burns out. But God, he created all these things and they never burned out. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. That word majesty there means with great magnificence. It means with splendor. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he spoke to God in the dedication and spoke how glorious he was, how magnificent he was. What great splendor he saw when he spoke about God who had blessed them to be able to build that temple and dedicate it on that occasion, you see. But let's notice the expression, when he had by himself purged our sins. Now let's read it without the word himself. And when he had purged us from our sins. That's the truth, isn't it? It sounded pretty good, didn't it? It sounded okay. I mean, I think the English works there. The structure of the sentence works there. So why put the word himself there? And you will find he puts the word himself numerous times in the New Testament. When he had by himself. Let me ask you, how many people did God confer with before he created the heaven and the earth? How many people did God consult? Adam wasn't around. Nobody was around. God didn't say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about creating this heaven and the earth, but I need to talk it over with somebody. There was nobody there. Wisdom itself, my friends, created the heaven and the earth. How many people does he consult as how to keep it all going? Has he asked you for your opinion lately? And he said, hey, uh, you know, I've been keeping this thing going for a long time, but, you know, I, what do you think? Well, you think I'd be able to do it till I come again? <laughs> he needed no help in creating these things. He needs no help in keeping them going, and he needed no help in salvation. When he had by himself purged us from our sins. When something is purged, something is taken out, something is taken away. Your sins have been taken away from you. They've been purged from you. In 1 John 2, 1, the apostle John writes, says, little children, these things we write in you that you sin not. But if any man sin, let him know we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. That means satisfaction for our sins. That means the Father is pleased with the work of the Son. Why is he pleased? Because our sins have been purged from us when he had by himself. Not when he and the preacher or he and the church or he and the witness or whatever, but when he had by himself purchased us from our sins. What did he do? He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We look in Hebrews 10 and 12. 
And he says, wherefore this man made one offering for sins forever. And he sat down on the right hand of God. Now, four different times in the book of Hebrews, you will find the expression where Christ sat down on the right hand of God, the right hand of the majesty of God, or the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. And that's pretty important because the book of Hebrews was to the Hebrews who were very familiar with the Old Testament man and way of worship and Moses' law. And the priesthood is a major subject in the book of Hebrews. It's what everything else kind of centers around. It's a major subject in the book of Hebrews. A comparison of the Lord Jesus Christ with the priest of the Old Testament day. So he says in Hebrews 10, 12, Wherefore this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever, I like the forever there, forever set down the right hand of God. Now the verse above that says, for the priest daily offering sacrifices, and oftentimes the same sacrifices, could never by those sacrifices put away sin. Did you notice that? They could never put away sin. And they offered sacrifices every single day. Sometimes the same sacrifices, they offered them on a daily basis, but guess what? They never put away sin. I remember as a little boy, uh, sometimes hear a preacher talk about that. He'd say, uh, it just rolled our sins away, you know, just rolled them down the road like kicking a can. That's not true. They never rolled sin anywhere. And it never put away sin. It was a reminder that sin had to be put away. And the law demanded perfection, and those priests could not produce it. But this man, now I love that expression, you find it a number of times in the Bible, but this man, what man? Jesus Christ, the man. But this man, when he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, how many? One. Forever. He sat down the right hand, the majesty on high. Two verses later, he said, For what, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The emphasis is on one offering, one sacrifice. We back up to verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts off like this. It says, now, concerning the things we have spoken. Well, you got seven chapters of things he has spoken. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. That we have a high priest which is set down on the right hand of God. That's the sum of it. Now, why set down? Because it's made this point many times over the years. When the priests made their offering sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple, they had no chair, they had no seat. There was only one seat in that tabernacle, it belonged to God. It was the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded, the golden pot of manna, and the two tables of stone, the law. Christ fulfilled the law to a jot and a tittle. He is the living bread, the golden pot of manna typifies. And Aaron's rod that budded, his rod was a lifeless stick that God brought life out of. And God brought life, my friends, when his son come forth out of the grave. He was dead for three days and three nights, but he arose victorious over death in the grave. And because of that, all the family of God have life. There was a mercy seat. That mercy seat was a perfect fit. It did not overlap. And it was not too narrow and was not too, um, too short. It was a perfect fit. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was a perfect fit, so to speak. Christ did not offer his sacrifice as a general and shed his blood as a general atonement. For he shed his blood for a particular people. It was a perfect fit. A perfect fit. And so God would come down and sit on the, on the seat of the mercy seat. But the priest didn't have a seat. They didn't have a seat because they never got the job done. They didn't have a seat because the work was never completed. The work was never accomplished. But the Lord Jesus Christ, after making one offering and one sacrifice, got the job done. He made one offering and one sacrifice, and he sat down on the right hand of God, signifying the work is done. Don't you just love John 19 and 30? I guess I'll tell you what it says. 
It's one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. I hope most of you already know it. But it's a three-letter, uh, I mean, excuse me, a three-word expression, but oh, how powerful it is. The Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon that cross said, it is finished. Well, if it's finished, it's finished, isn't it? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ stands on its own. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't need anything added to it. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished its purpose. The death of Jesus Christ took place when he made the offering and sacrifice to the Father and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was taken off the cross, put into a barred tomb of Joseph Arimathea and after three days and three nights he arose from the dead. It is finished. The theology of the world says it's just got started. It's the beginning. It's not the beginning. It's the end. <laughs> it is finished. Salvation was completed. Redemption took place. Justification, my friends, was accomplished. And reconciliation between God the Father and his children took place. Aren't you glad it's finished? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't say, well, I, I got most of it done. Now it's up to you to carry it on the rest of the way. <laughs> now it's up to you to finish the task. Where would we be? We'd be <laughs> lost without hope in the world, wouldn't we? But Jesus Christ said, it is finished. What he came in the world to do had been accomplished. What he came in the world to do, it was finished. Nothing could be added to it. Nothing needed to be added to it. And thank God, nothing could ever be taken away from it, no matter what people believe. I, I heard the other day um, a very sincere person. I know very sincere was giving a little testimony and said, you know, there's going to be a lot of good people in hell. A lot of good people in hell. You know who's going to be in hell? The wicked and evil are going to be in hell. No good person is going to be in hell. You see, by nature, none of us are good. Read Romans chapter 3. There's none good, no, not one. So how does somebody come to be good? Because the divine nature of God that's planted in your heart and soul and regeneration makes you good. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Hear what Paul said? He said, in my flesh, in my human nature, dwelleth no good thing. Well, I know the apostle Paul was a good man after the Damascus Road experience. Jesus Christ came to a rich young ruler and the rich young ruler called him good master. And Jesus asked him the question, why call me good? There is none good but God. Apart from God, there's not a good person who's ever lived upon the face of this earth. Thank God there are, have been and are good people in this earth because God made them good when he born them of the Spirit of God. You look at John 5 and 28. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, And marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. When they in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, and they've done good to the resurrection of life, and they've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Nobody good is going to receive the resurrection of damnation. I, I, want to, I hope you're getting that point. By nature, there is none good. You're only good because God has made you good in the work of the new, uh, regeneration when he born you in the Spirit of God, put his divine nature within inside of you, giving you desire to live in a manner and way that people would say, that's a good man or that's a good woman. When he made one offering, one sacrifice to the Father, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a sum of the things that's been said. Well, you go back and read some of the things that's been said about Christ as our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4 it says, Seeing then we have such a great high priest that's passed into the heavens, let us, pass, uh, let us hold fast our profession. They said that about the Lord. They said the Lord was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. They said that the Lord, and you go back and read the, the previous uh, verses above chapter 8, verse 1, and you'll find where it says, For Christ has made a surety of a better testament. No priest in the Old Testament ever did that. He said, for those priests didn't continue by the reason of death. But this man hath an unchangeable priesthood. See, Christ 
is not going to die again. Those priests went as far as they could, and when they died, another priest took their place. He did all he could do till he died. Another priest took his place, but that's not the same with Jesus. These priests offered daily. This man offered once. That's the sum. That's the contrast. That's the difference, you see. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. As this chapter opens up, He's been talking about all those in chapter 11 who lived in the Old Testament day who were great examples of faith, who lived by faith and through faith. Then he says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. That was a great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, wasn't it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Enoch, Sarah, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, all them. Great witnesses. Rahab the harlot, great witness of faith. You study her life. Wherefore we encompass with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and these sin that does so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. Do you think it was hid from Christ that he be despised and rejected of men? Do you think it was hid from Christ that he'd be ridiculed? And blasphemed? You think he was hid from Christ that he'd be scourged? You think he was hid from Christ that he'd be buffeted? You think he was hid from Christ that he'd be smitten beside his face with the palms of men's hands? You think he was hidden from Christ that he'd have nails in his head, driven his hands and nails in his feet and a sword that would pierce his side? You think all that was hid from Christ? He knew all of that. And as I like to say, the miracle of that is he came for us anyway. Even though he knew he'd be despised and rejected of men, he came anyway. Even though he knew he'd have the hands of men, the palms of men's hands to smite his face and slap him, he came anyway. Even though they knew they'd make a crown of thorns and put upon his precious head and press it down, he came anyway. Even though he knew the Roman soldiers would take him and put him on a wooden cross and take nails and put in his hands and his feet and a sword piercing his side, he came anyway. Why? Who for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He was willing to do that. Who for the joy that was set before him is willing to despise the shame, endure the cross, and is set down on the right hand of God. What was the joy? I believe the joy was the fact that he knew that his bride was going to be with him in glory one day based upon what he would do for her. I believe the joy that was set before him was knowing that he was going to redeem his people and he was going to put their sins away as far as the east is from the west. I believe the joy was knowing that he would conquer death so that we'd conquer death one day. I believe the joy was the fact that one day we'll come out of the grace because he came out of the grave. I believe the joy, my friends, that he knew that one day, based on what he would accomplish in his first coming, he would come again the second time and speak, and his jewels with our friends be gathered together, and he would take them across the threshold right into heaven. That was the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he was willing to despise his shame and endure the cross. And then he sat down the right hand of God. I want to go to Romans 8.34 and answer a question. In Romans 8.34, Paul asked the question, Who is he that condemneth? Now this is about the, I think about the fifth question. Might be wrong on that, you go count them, but I think it's about the fifth question that Paul has asked concerning what he entered into in verse 28 and 29 and 30. When he said, we know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. For well, over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And when he did predestinate, then he also called. And when he called, then he also justified. And when he justified, then he also glorified. 
What shall we then say to these things? He's going to draw a conclusion from what he's just said. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's question one. For if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not also, excuse me, for if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? What could he have given us greater than that? What could he have given us more than that? He gave us his only begotten son. He spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also freely give us all things? He's going to freely give them to you, brethren. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather is risen again. Who is on the right hand of God. Making intercession for us. See, the subject of condemnation, like most subjects in the Bible, has an eternal face to it. It has a timely face to it. You can experience condemnation, brethren, and if you don't experience condemnation, you don't have much evidence that you're born of the Spirit of God. When you do wrong, don't tell me God doesn't let you know about it. When you say something you shouldn't say, God lets you know about it. When you do something you shouldn't do, God lets you know about it. He doesn't let you get by. He don't let you get by. You're going to feel some condemnation right in here and right in here. But when it comes to eternal condemnation, brethren, Christ died for you. And Christ rose for you. And he's on the right hand of God, even now, making intercession for you. Oh, I tell you, I love the, inter- the, the subject of the interceding grace of God, don't you? There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful to have a Savior in glory who's on the right hand, the majesty on high, Make an intercession for me because I know when I pray, sometimes I feel like uh, uh, I got to be the worst, worst in the world at that. <laughs> I just feel like that I, I'm so frail, so, so poor, so undone, uh, so inadequate to express myself to God the Father. Uh, no way my prayer could ever be answered based upon my little utterance and my words that I spake. But thank God, I got a Savior up there that takes them and he gets them all straightened out, gives them to the Father, and the Father gives them, they're perfect. <laughs> when I think about that, I, I think I've told you this before, it reminds me so much of the story of the little girl that was staying in this in this very, very expensive hotel. And she come down there, and there was this grand piano. And she didn't know how to play. But she sat down on the stool at piano, and she began to pluck along, making the most awful noise you've ever heard. And people were getting upset. And there happened to be a master piano player, (laughs) well-known, famous, that was staying there. And he observed it. And he came and sat down beside her and put his arms around her and started playing. Next thing you know, instead of people leaving, people started gathering. <laughs> That's the way the Lord does. The <laughs> Lord just puts his hands around you. And the Lord just takes those little feeble efforts that you've been trying to make and feeling so, so undone and feeling like no way my prayers could be answered based upon the way I've expressed myself. But the Savior puts his arms around you and just overplays you. And it comes out real beautiful. And the Savior presents your, your feeble efforts to the Father. And the Father answers those prayers. He makes intercession for us. One day you're going to be on the right hand of the Father. One day you're going to be on the right hand of God. And how does Psalm 1611 end up? He says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And on thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. (laughs) In thy presence. We get a little taste of that here, don't we? I I think I'm tasting a little bit of it right now. (laughs) I hope you are. (laughs) In thy presence is what? Fullness of joy. I got some joy in my heart right now. (laughs) That I didn't have before I got here. I got some joy right now. You know why? Because I've I've got the Lord before me, before my face, and he's on my right hand. I shall not be moved. 
And I'm going to do the best I can to keep the devil from robbing me of that when I leave here today. You ever experience that? You just float out the church. You walk in and float out till you get in the car. And then all of a sudden the devil starts talking to you. <laughs> I remember one time I was called in 1979. I lived in North Carolina. A little union church in Florida called me. I took five months praying over that decision. I finally, I was down there in the annual meeting and got up to preach. And it seemed like the Lord gave me such a peace of mind. And I, I, and I accepted the church at that time. And there was a lot of rejoicing going on. There, there was just a lot of weeping going on. And I felt like a load was taken off of my shoulders. And we just had the most wonderful time of fellowship you've ever seen afterwards. And then we left and I got in the car. And as we was driving down the road, the devil started talking to me. He said, you know what you just did? I said, well, I thought I did. <laughs> you know, you'll talk to him if you ain't careful. You know what you just did? You just told somebody you're going to be their pastor. You live 650 miles away from them. You got to go back home and you got to tell the church back there that you, you're going to leave. You got to go back home, tell your family you're leaving. You got to go back home, tell your wife's family you're leaving. And the next thing you know, I was a miserable wreck, about to fall apart. And then I got hold of myself and I looked and I saw the Lord before my face. And I saw him at my right hand. And I said, Lord, if I've made the right decision, I know you'll help me overcome anything and everything I've got to overcome to make this transition. I know I've got to sell a house. I know I don't have a place to live. Uh, you know, I, I won't think about all them kind of things. All I was concerned about was this, your will for me to take this church. And I believe it was. And if it was your will, I know that you will be on my right hand and you will not suffer me to be moved.